Bibles, if you would please, and turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 15. 1 Samuel chapter 15, after a long absence from this book, we are returning to it this morning. 1 Samuel chapter 15. We're going to read it in uh, just a moment, but I'd like you to have your Bibles open, if you would please, uh, to that passage of Scripture. 1 Samuel 15. Uh, last Sunday night, uh, I, uh, tw- 20,000 of my closest friends and I gathered at Long's Park for the concert and fireworks. Uh, we've gone for uh, three or four years in a row, I think. Uh, outdoor concerts are quite a bit different than indoor concerts. During outdoor concerts, people talk and they get up and move around and they turn their back on the stage and they eat dinner and all sorts of things while the music is playing. I, I know some of the people that were there um, were, were perhaps just there tolerating the band while they waited for the fireworks. But it was a concert band, and I used to play in a concert band. Nothing cool, I said a concert band. And it was, I liked it. I liked the music. And while I was sitting there listening, I thought, you know, I should really focus on this. These are world-class musicians. It's a wonderful opportunity to hear them. So I decided that while I was sitting there to close my eyes so I could listen more carefully. This is what soulful people do, right? They close their eyes. And I found something very strange. I discovered that when I closed my eyes the audience noise actually got louder and the band got softer in my ears. It was not the purpose of why I was being soulful. I'm not sure why that is. It, it Probably uh, a scientist could explain this. She could come up here and tell us about the strange connection between your eyes and your ears. It's probably related to uh, why when you're looking for a new address you've never been to, you turn down the radio. Why? Why can you read street signs better when your radio is down? I, I don't understand that. It doesn't, doesn't make sense. Listening is a strange and a wonderful skill, and it's sometimes mysterious. We have before us this morning a passage of Scripture where the primary theme is the voice of God and listening to God's voice. Not just hearing God's voice, but heeding God's voice And the the question that it sets down before anybody who picks up and reads it is, whose voice do you listen to? And why does that voice have so much power? You probably know about the transition that usually takes place in someone's life. Any child psychologist will tell you that when your children are very small, when a child is small, the, the preeminent voice in his or her life is the voice of his parents. They listen most chiefly to their parents. But sometimes during adolescence, Parents fade in importance, and the more important voice becomes that of their friends. You move from your parents to your peers. What about you? Who do you listen to? Uh, If Paul Tripp were here this morning, he would tell us that the most important voice in your life is actually your voice. No one talks to you. You don't listen to anyone more than you, yourself. But beyond that, next, who's next on the list? Your friends, um, your television, the news. Uh, who's, who are you listening to and are they worth listening to? Now, I said a moment ago that 1 Samuel 15 is about Saul and uh, it was about uh, listening to God's voice. And the main character who's struggling with this is, of course, Saul. We're familiar with Saul. We've come to know Saul quite well over the last several months. And you should probably know that because we're talking about Saul here and listening to God's voice, he's going to fail. 
And you probably know why he's going to fail. You could summarize it in that one terrible four-letter word, fear. Saul fails because he's afraid. Well, it's been a month or so since we've been in this book, so let me just spend a minute or two reorienting you to this text. I have suggested we're in the middle, uh, not the middle, probably towards the beginning, uh, first quarter, of uh, walking through First and Second Samuel together. These two books tell us that God um, shepherds his people through his anointed king. Right before Samuel, in the, the Hebrew Bible, we have the book of Judges. Now, in our Bible, Ruth is tucked in there, but Judges is right there in the Hebrew Bible. And the book of Judges tells us over and over again why God's people, why the Israelites need a king. Without a king, things are terrible. They need a leader like Moses and Joshua. Uh, without a leader like that, it is dangerous to live in the nation. But when God's people ask for a king, they, they, they come to realize this and they want a king, that doesn't work out too well either. I think there's this tension in Samuel. It occurred to me, I, I was thinking about this, the people, the book of Judges says, you really need a king. But when they ask for a king in 1 Samuel chapter 8, God says, oh, you've rejected me as king. I'm your king, and by asking for a human king, you're rejecting me, the divine king. There's this tension that I don't think is actually resolved in the Bible until the New Testament. Follow me here for a minute if you can. They desperately need a human king. The book of Judges makes this argument over and over again. And, but God is their king. But, but they need a human king. But God is their king. What are they going to do? Let's see. Who could it be who might fill this role? Could it be... The Lord Jesus, the God-man, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who's finally going to resolve this tension that, that arises. It, it could be. We'll have to wait. We're only in Samuel. There's a lot of more books before we get to the New Testament. So uh, uh, they ask for this king. Part of the problem, even with their request, is they want the, the wrong kind of a king. They want a king who's just like all the other nations. So um, God gives them Saul. And in many ways, Saul's a fine king. The Bible describes him as valiant. He, he it describes briefly some of his military va- battles. He's tall, he's handsome, he's strong. In, in many ways, he's a fine king. And yet, the longest stories in the Bible about Saul tell us that he is a man who is controlled by fear. In response to fear, he tries to uh, manipulate his circumstances. He disobeys God's commands. He puts others at risk in order to save his own reputation. He relies on rituals to try to find peace. His life is just ruined by fear. Do you know what that's like? To be controlled by fear like this? One of the ways that I see fear manifest itself in my own life is uh, that it keeps me from saying the things that I ought to say. Terrible for someone who makes a living by talking. I'm not as bold as I should be in speaking to others about the hope that we have in Jesus. Or I'm slow to talk to my friends about struggles that they appear to be having. Fear keeps me silent when I should speak. My wife made me proud this week. She makes me proud every week, but she made me proud this week in particular. She was at work, and her coworkers were talking about the recent Supreme Court decision uh, to hear the case of a Colorado baker who was fined for refusing to bake a cake for a same-sex wedding ceremony. Now, I'm bringing this up, and this is a massive topic that deserves a lot more attention than I'm going to give it right now. But in the next two seconds, I'm going to say, we believe 
that the Bible clearly teaches that marriage is a lifelong commitment between a man and a woman. And I don't think that the government should force people to express themselves artistically to promote a message that violates their conscience. So I was happy that the Supreme Court's going to...
surely the bitterness of death is past. But Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so will your mother be childless among women. And Samuel put Agag to death before the Lord at Gilgal. Then Samuel left for Ramah, but Saul went up to his home in Gibeah of Saul. Until the day Samuel died, he did not see Saul again. Though Samuel mourned for him, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Following Jesus is a lifetime spent learning to listen to God's voice. This is what we do. It's a process. We learn how to listen to God's voice. There's growth. There's failure. There's times when it seems easier, times when it seems more difficult. But this is the life of those who are followers of Jesus. We learn to listen. And 1 Samuel chapter 15 is a, is a, a basic argument for this. It, it's here to tell us why. Why do we struggle? Why do we fight for this? Why do we go after learning to listen to God's voice? And I have three reasons in the text that I want to show you as we move through it this morning. Here's, here's number one. We learn to listen to God's voice because God speaks clearly. Because God speaks clearly. He doesn't equivocate. He doesn't lie. He doesn't deceive. He's not secretive about what he desires. He speaks clearly. Now, I know immediately that some of you are thinking, you're sitting there thinking to yourself that you wish God spoke more clearly about a few things. I'll come back to that in just a moment. But for now, let's just think about this command that starts chapter 15. Saul comes to Samuel and he reminds him, I am the Lord's prophet who anointed you as king. He asserts his authority and he says, now I have a message from God. Hear the voice of the Lord. Go and destroy the Amalekites. It's in verse 3. Go attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. It's a perfectly clear command. And Saul understands that he doesn't have any difficulty in understanding it. Do you have any trouble understanding this command? Actually, (laughs) this is one of those verses in the Bible where our trouble is not that we don't understand what it says. The trouble that we have with it is that we do understand what it says. This is pretty clear. Completely destroy them, all of them. Kill them. The women and the babies and the animals too. With your sword, pierce the heart or the brain of an infant in its mother's arms. Uh, This issue comes up frequently uh, when people want to uh, question the legitimacy or the worthiness of the Old Testament. They point to passages just like this where God makes commands like this. Let's talk about this for for just a minute here. Uh, When the Bible says, my translation says, go and totally destroy, your Bible might say, devote to destruction. It's translating a Hebrew word. I wrote it in English on your note sheet. It's the the word harem. Harem is a particular type of warfare that God sometimes commands in the scriptures. There are moments having to do with a particular, uh, with, with the, the Israelites' conquest of the promised land, where God commands the Israelites to destroy completely a city or a nation. God is the only one with the authority to make this command in the Bible, and it's limited to a particular list of nations. And each of the nations that God identifies for this, for Haram, are guilty of committing some specific and often horrifying sin. Child sacrifice, gross sexual immorality, 
something like that. Here, in this case, the Amalekites, Deuteronomy 25 tells us 400 years before this event, that when the Israelites were leaving Egypt as they were going to Mount Sinai, the Amalekites came and they picked off the stragglers. There were people who were sick or who were aged or who were uh, nursing infants, and the Amalekites, they were, they were slower in following the rest of the tribe, and the Amalekites came and picked them off, harassed them, killed them. And, and God said, that will not stand. God gave the nations involved in Cherem a long time to repent, hundreds of years. The Amalekites had 400 years, and they refused. Cherem is a form of God's judgment. And in this war, everything is to be destroyed, absolutely everything. It all belongs to God, and no Israelite is supposed to profit from this type of war. If this troubles you, it's supposed to trouble you. You're supposed to read this and be shocked. This is God's divine pronouncement. He as creator has right to make this. And this is a terrible, horrible judgment. Harem in the Old Testament represents a form of corporate responsibility. Maybe that's why we struggle with this. See, in our judicial system, we strongly emphasize individual responsibility. You are guilty of your own crimes. You're not guilty of your parents' crimes. You're guilty of your own crimes. But here, it's corporate there are times in the Bible that, that guilt is corporate. And it works actually for both good and for bad. The Kenites are saved because of what their ancestors did. The Amalekites are destroyed because of what their ancestors did. Now, if you have questions about corporate responsibility, you should remember that corporate responsibility to a certain extent plays an important role in the gospel. See, in this passage, the Amalekites die due to their crimes committed by their ancestors. Now, I'm sure that in the overall scheme of God, there, were some, they, 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 there was none of them who were innocent. They all deserve uh, judgment, even though it's been delayed. That, that's true. But, but they're being punished specifically for the, the work of their ancestors. The Bible tells us that, that all of humanity is, is in two groups, two corporate groups. There's the Adam team, and there's the Christ team. We are all born members of the Adam group. By nature, we belong here. By nature and by choice, we belong in the Adam group. And the Adam group is marked by rebellion against God and, and being under God's judgment. But there is the Christ group, too. The Bible invites anybody who's in the Adam group to come and join the Christ group by believing in Christ. And, and those who are in the Christ group are, are there. God blesses them and God welcomes them. You don't deserve to be in the Christ group. You deserve to be in the Adam group. You don't deserve to be in the Christ group. But if you're in the Christ group, you receive God's blessing and God's welcome because of the, response, the actions of one, namely Christ. So be careful... Be careful about totally trying to eviscerate corporate responsibility from the Bible. It's, it's an important brick in the story of the gospel itself. Regardless here, Samuel is very clear about what Saul is supposed to do. And Saul obeys promptly. He doesn't obey completely. We'll talk about that in a minute. But he obeys uh, promptly. He goes and gets soldiers and makes a plan and goes to Texas City quickly. Wonderful. Remember here... God has spoken clearly. 
And, and Saul is, going, is at the first listening. This is why followers of Jesus learn to listen, because God speaks clearly. Now, I know that some of you are thinking about the ways that you wish God had been more clear. And you have decisions to make, don't you? Um, you have decisions to make about marriage or about parenting or about retirement. Should I marry this person? Uh, how do I treat my prodigal son or daughter? Uh, is now the time to retire? Should I buy this house or this house? These are important decisions, and some of you wish that there was a verse, don't you? You wish there was a verse in the text that said, And thou shalt take unto thyself a wife named Kathy, and shalt move with her to Millersville, Pennsylvania, and thou shalt have three children. That's my verse. You can't have it, right? Okay? But, but some of you wish there were a verse like that in the Bible. Right? I, I know that. I know what that feeling is like. But, but can I remind you that the vast majority of decisions that you have to make today, God has spoken clearly about? Of all the decisions you have to make today, God has spoken very clearly about 98% of them. So clearly that sometimes you're not even aware of the fact that God has spoken clearly about it, right? Um, you, you came to church today. Why did you come to church today? Because God is clear about it. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves with other believers. Go to church. The Bible's very clear about that, and here you are. I'm not sure how, how much you thought about that this morning when you woke up and thought, what's God's will for me today? I just don't know. I'm not sure if you thought about that. That's very clear in the text. God speaks. God speaks very clearly about what you're supposed to do with your money. Be as generous as you can. He speaks clearly about what you're supposed to wear. Did you think about that? God speaks clearly about this. If you're a man, dress like a man. If you're a woman, dress like a woman. That's something clear he says. Don't spend so much time bedazzling yourself with jewels and, and finery that, that you, you draw attention away from where true beauty lies, which is inward. I mean, <laughs> Bob Jones, Bob Jones University used to say, it's not very nice, but he used to say, if the barn door needs painting, paint it, right? He used to say that, okay? So that's not in the Bible, but, but uh, 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 you know, we're not opposed to uh, uh, looking fine, we're opposed to the sort of finery that, that gives a lie to the fact that we believe that true beauty is internal. Dress modestly. Current fashion is no friend to modesty these days. No one's going to help you at the mall. Dress modestly. No one. God speaks clearly about that, though. How are you supposed to respond to your mom or dad today? God speaks clearly about your attitude this afternoon. There was a Sunday school teacher who was talking to her students. She said, now, which of the Ten Commandments helps us treat our parents well? And the little boy raised her hand, his hand. Honor your father and mother. Excellent. So she says to them, probing a little bit, is there a commandment about your brother or sister? One of the students raised his hand and said, yes, thou shalt not kill. Clearly, it's a good place to start. 95% of the decisions that you make today are addressed clearly in this text. And because God speaks, we learn to listen to his voice. We want to hear what he has to say. Now, secondly here, 
Why else do we learn to listen to God's voice? This passage also tells us that we are prone to compromise. We're prone to compromise. God speaks clearly, but we're prone to compromise. And here's where the warning of this passage begins. This is not a happy passage of Scripture. Um, Look at verse 9. The text says, while he goes and attacks the Amalekites, great. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak they totally destroyed. Here's where the trouble begins. Everything was to be destroyed. By destroying everything, they were on the battlefield, they were making a statement, this all belongs to God, it's God's. But instead, they gave him what was weak and despised and kept everything that looked good for themselves. Oh, Saul comes and confronts Samuel about that, and Samuel begins his defense. Verse 13, well, I like this. He's proactive, isn't he? When Samuel reached him, Saul said, I've carried out the Lord's instructions. Praise God. What's that voice I hear? I shouldn't be hearing the voice of sheep if you listen to the voice of the Lord. Oh. Then, then Saul, verse 15 the soldiers, the soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and the cattle. Um, we've talked about this before. Saul here uh, enters into the, the mode that we most often do when we're confronted by our, it's somebody else's fault. It's not my fault. It's their fault. It's the soldier's fault. Uh, this blaming other people happens in my home. I say to somebody, hey, why did you do that? Or stop doing that. And the answer I get is, but she, but he. Happens in my home, happens in the news too. Why are the Republicans doing what they're doing? Because the Democrats did it first. Right? Or vice versa. Happens in my heart. My home happens in the news, happens in my own heart. I wouldn't do this if this is somebody else's fault. It's not my fault. You have not truly repented of your sins or truly confessed until you own your sins, period. You, your sins, own them, period. When blaming doesn't work here, Saul, who's king? Who's king, Saul? Your king, Saul. It's not their fault. It's your fault. Blaming doesn't work, so Saul deflects. He redefines his sin. He says, this is for sacrifice, verse 15. Um, uh, uh, They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but we totally destroyed the rest. Except, I'm not sure about this. There's a lot of clues in the text that seem to indicate that maybe Saul isn't thinking so much about sacrifice as he claims. I think he's shading the truth a little bit here. Why do I think that? Well, A number of reasons. I I wonder about that because the text tells us that the first thing Saul did after he won the battle is he went and built a monument to himself. (laughs) The Saul Memorial. I'm not sure sacrifice is the first thing in his mind. It doesn't seem so. Uh, Then the the text tells us, um, 2, verse 19, it says, Why did you pounce on the plunder? Um... The, 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 the text emphasizes greed 
Um, in chapter 14, when the army, they took a vow, they couldn't eat food. And when they finally were allowed to eat food, they pounced on the food because they were starving. Like a, a group of hungry men at a Super Bowl party digging for the wings. You know, I'm hungry. And Saul is pouncing on the plunder because he's hungry. I'm not sure he's thinking about sacrifice. And if he's thinking about sacrifice, why did he save Agag, the king? Maybe he was trying to collect him as a living monument. This is what you did, actually, in those days. If you were a king and you wanted to show how great you were, you took the other kings of the nations and you made them servants in your court. You chained them up in your throne room. See, look at all the kings that I've defeated. Did Saul collect Agag for that purpose? Whose glory is Saul really thinking about? And then there's this word for sacrifice that Saul uses. You remember that when we went through Leviticus, there's a number of different types of sacrifices in the Old Testament. One of the types of sacrifices is a burnt offering. You put it on the altar and everything goes up in smoke. It's all offered to God, a whole burnt offering. There's another type of offering called a peace offering or a fellowship offering in which uh, you offer some of it to God, but then you keep some of it for yourself. That's the word that Saul uses here in this passage. He's going to keep some of God's sacrifice for himself. Do you know who else did that in the Bible? Hophni and Phinehas. In the beginning of Samuel, they took the Lord's sacrifice. Oh, Saul. Saul says to Samuel, I did obey, I did obey. No, you did not. And Samuel calls him out on this. This is what a prophet is supposed to do. Wonderful. And just to clarify for us all, Samuel gives him this poem which is the center of the chapter, really. Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? Just for a moment, think about that word delight. This is a dark chapter. I'm glad that Samuel used the word delight. God delights. He delights in obedience. Joy in God's heart. Because in this passage, he is firm and disciplinary and and wrathful. I'm glad that the word delight is here because God is a God who does delight. There's joy in him. Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as as much as in obeying the Lord? This is important because one of the ways that we're prone to compromise is by using our goodness as an excuse. You might say, hey, I'm an elder. I'm an Awana leader. I'm a teacher. I do good works. I know I let some of the things slide, but generally I do okay. And, and Saul comes along and Samuel comes along and says, does the Lord delight in a great Sunday school lesson as much as he delights in obedience? Does he delight in a well-led small group meeting as he does in obedience? You can't make up your own rules for what compensates for your compromises. Well, I'm not sleeping with my girlfriend. I'm using porn, but I'm not sleeping with my girlfriend. It's okay, right? I mean, it's not quite as bad. I haven't got anybody pregnant. God speaks clearly, and he calls us to obey him. Willful disobedience is like divination. It's like idolatry because they all involve a replacement of God. When you divine, when you try to find the future, you are replacing God with magic. When you use idolatry, you're replacing God with statues. When you make compromises like this, you're replacing God with your own judgment of what's right and what's wrong and what really matters. Actually, the text is quite explicit about replacement, isn't it? Verse 24, what's Saul doing? I listen to the people's voice. I listen to the soldier's voice, not God's voice. 
Do you recognize any of these things in your life? The blame game? Uh, being afraid of people? Living by popular opinion? Defining things down so that they meet your standards of what obedience is instead of, instead of following the standards that God has set? Do you, do you find any of those in your life? This is why we are learning to listen to God's voice because we are prone to compromise. Now, here's a final reason in the text here why we're learning to listen to God's voice. There are consequences for failing to listen. There are consequences for failing to listen. Verses 23 and 26 repeat this phrase, because you have rejected the Lord, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. In chapter 13, due to his impatient disobedience, Saul loses the dynasty. Here in chapter 15, due to his disobedience, the kingdom is going to be taken away from him. Now Saul makes two confessions. It's very interesting, I think. He makes two confessions. Verse 24, he says, I have sinned. I violated the Lord's commands and your instructions. Verse 25, now I beg you, forgive my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. Um, Saul is still afraid. What does he want Samuel to do? So, Samuel has come to him, and if the nation finds out, that the army finds out that Samuel came with him but didn't go with him to worship, well, he'll be ashamed. He'll be ashamed in front of the people. So he says to Samuel, oh, please, just come with me to worship so that, so that I, I can stand in front of the, the, the soldiers. Please just come back. And, and, and Samuel says, no. Saul reaches out and grabs him, tears his robe. <gasps> Do you know who made Samuel's robes? Where did Samuel get his robes, his mother? You don't tear something a man, from a man that his mother gave him. I'm not sure if, if Hannah's still alive. If Samuel says he's old at this point in time. I don't know if she's still alive and made this robe, but still. Saul, Samuel says, God's going to tear the kingdom from you. We'll talk about torn clothing with Saul a little bit more in weeks that are to come. Then he makes a second confession. Samuel's second confession in verse 28, he doesn't ask for forgiveness this time. What's that? Samuel said to him, the Lord is, uh, let's see, uh, the, verse 30. Saul replied, I have sinned, but please honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel. Come back with me so that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel went, did go back with him this time. Uh, he didn't ask for forgiveness in his second confession, and Samuel went. Now, we need to stop here for a minute to consider verse 29. Look what verse 29 says. He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a human being that he should change his mind. It's an interesting verse. What does this mean here? I think that we should understand verse 29, most specifically in the context of verse 28, when Samuel says, the kingdom is going to be taken from you today and given to one of your neighbors Verse 29, he comes along, and God is not going to change his mind. He is definitely going to do this. Now, there are times in the Bible, what's confusing about this is, we have to think about the times that God does seem to change his mind. He, he told Jonah he was going to destroy Nineveh, and he didn't. So is verse 29 true or not? Well, again, most specifically we think in the context. There are sometimes in the Bible where God makes definitive statements, just like this. This is going to happen. There is no changing it. And there are times in the Bible where God says, 
this is what's going to happen, and things change. Why? God changes most often in response to the repentance of people. (laughs) That's actually good news. Well, think about this, how this might work in my house. There are times in my house when I issue commands. I say, Luke, go clean your room. By that pronouncement, I mean right now, leave what you're doing, go upstairs and clean your room. This is the command that I have issued. Sometimes Luke will say, can I finish this drawing before I do? And most of the time, even though my initial command had been, go clean your room, no. Even though that had been my initial command, that's not an unreasonable request. He's drawing a picture, he wants to finish it, and then he'll clean his room. Sure. As much as I can, I say, that sounds like a plan. Don't forget, though, when you finish drawing, go clean your room. I changed the law. There are other times, though, in my house when I make pronouncements. Words that cannot be challenged, changed, compromised, argued with, or questioned. Unless Kathy has an opinion about the matter. (laughs) Verse 29 is one of those times where God says, this is the way it's going to be. A new king is coming. While we're thinking about this, about God's pronouncements, we should also maybe think about his regret. Verse 11 says, I regret that I've made Saul king. God says at the end, verse 35, the Lord regretted they had made Saul king over Israel. What are we to do about this? There's two times in the Bible where the Bible says that God regretted. He regretted in Genesis 6 making humanity, and he regrets here in 1 Samuel 15 making Saul king. In both places, God starts anew. He started anew in Genesis with Noah, He starts anew in Samuel with David. What's going on here? I think this is reminding us of the fact that even though we believe that the Bible says that God is sovereign and he's omniscient and he's omnipotent, this is a passage that reminds us that God, his interaction with us is real. He has a real relationship in time and and in place with us, a real right now relationship. Can you imagine... Um, God is not a supercomputer, an omniscient supercomputer who is just responding to us with programming. He's really responding to us in time and in space, even though he's sovereign and he's omniscient. Think about how your relationship would be with your husband if you were omnipotent and omniscient and you knew everything about him. And he came home and he said, hey, let me tell you what happened today. And you said, I already know because I know everything about you. And and he buys you flowers for your anniversary. I knew that was going to happen. I knew you were going to do that. Would kind of take the life out of your relationship, wouldn't wouldn't it? Discourage him, flatten things out a little bit. God is sovereign and omniscient but has a real relationship with us. And here he is mourning over Saul. Saul, though, is facing, regardless of that, Saul's facing serious consequences. And if he did not quite understand what, what happens with Agag should have clarified it for him. Agag is brought to Samuel, and he walks up pretty confident. <laughs> I got spared. Everybody else is dead, but I got spared. And now they're taking me the king to meet the prophet. It's an important meeting, and I'm going to it. And then Samuel uh, hacks him to pieces what the text literally says. 
Samuel hacked him to pieces. You suppose Saul got the message at this point in time about God, the serious consequences he was facing? Your kingdom is over. I think he would get the message, wouldn't he? Refusing the voice of God has real consequences. This actually makes me think of the hymn, Stricken, Smitten, and Afflicted. Ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, here may view its nature rightly, here its guilt may estimate. Mark the sacrifice appointed, see who bears the awful load. Tis the word, the Lord's anointed, Son of Man and Son of God. Do you doubt that there's any consequences for refusing to listen to God's voice in the middle of the Bible? The Lord Jesus himself is hacked apart before the Lord for our sake. Do you doubt there's any consequences? We listen to the voice of God because we understand the supremacy of the God who speaks. Why was Saul, Saul, why are you more afraid of your soldiers than you are of God? You must be more afraid of him than you are of them. We understand the supremacy of God. No one's voice matters more than his. There are voices that are louder than his. There are voices that are more insistent than his. But no one's voice matters more than his. Next week, when we get together, we're going to meet Saul's better neighbor, It's going to be David. Why didn't God just appoint David as king first? Why didn't he do that? Why do we have to go through all these chapters with Saul? Actually, in part, this is the pattern of the Bible itself, isn't it? Here's Saul. He fails. Here's David. It's not perfect. We'll talk about that later. Here's Adam. He fails. Here's the last Adam, the Lord Jesus a descendant of David, he does not fail. I'm over here. I'm with Adam. I'm with Saul. I desperately need the Lord Jesus. Listen to what he said, speaking of voices, right? Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter with the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep, the Lord Jesus said. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. I am the good shepherd, the good shepherd who lays his life down for his sheep. Let's pray, shall we? Oh, Lord Jesus, we come before you today and how thankful we are to you for this story because it is like a mirror in showing us our compromises and our fears. Lord, we aspire as followers of the Lord Jesus to be people who listen solely to his voice. Oh, that you might tune our ears so that we might 
recognize the, the cacophony of the other voices that allure us. And so that we might have ears for your voice and your voice alone. Thank you that you forgive us. Thank you that you warn us. Thank you that you call us through your word. We praise you, Lord Jesus, for your voice, you who are the good shepherd. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen. As we approach communion this morning, we're going to sing the song, It Is Not Death to Die, which is one we haven't sung um, in a while, and there's actually, there's an instant.